Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Sushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, and two horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation and the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came near, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understand sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people. 
Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even raise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true. Therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you approach the book of Revelation in the New Testament, there are two significant issues that demand your attention before you can really proceed into it. The first one is, how does the book's message relate to the issue of the passage of time? If you don't understand that, then you really can't understand anything else. The second one is, uh, what are you to make concerning chapter 20, which has the only reference to quote the millennium by name in the whole of scripture, although uh, it's quite possible that the millennium might be referred to in Isaiah and a few of the Psalms, but by name, it only appears in in, uh, Revelation 20, and it's a striking passage. Uh, What do you do with that? That is your second issue when you come to the book. The second issue tends to be what in lay environments is where all the sound and fury is. Uh, are you premillennial? Are you postmillennial? Are you amillennial? Are you something else? That's what Christians, when they debate the book of Revelation, tend to debate. You know, what is the millennium? How does that work? What is God saying by that passage? Uh, Fascinating uh, imagery, and and people fight over it. But before you can do that and really get a handle on the second, you have to answer the question of the first. And it's not where people tend to spend their time thinking, but it is an absolute foundational issue. You have the revelation of Jesus Christ. He has pulled back the veil, which is what the name of the book means, He has shown you something in revealing this truth, but exactly how does it relate to time as time flows? And you have a number of of options there, not an infinite number, but there are about four that people fall down into, and where you fall into them will lead to how you interpret the rest of the book, including the millennium. Your four approaches tend to be these. You have the historicist approach, which is the historic Protestant interpretation of the book, and it sees the book of Revelation as a pre-written record of the course of history from the time of the apostle to the end of the world. Fulfillment is thus considered to be in progress at present and has been unfolding for nearly 2,000 years. You could be a and there is a partial version of this and a total version of it, the preterist approach sees the fulfillment of Revelation's prophecies as already having occurred in what is now, for us, the ancient past, not long after the author's own time. Thus, the fulfillment was in the future from the point of view of the inspired author, but it is in the past from our vantage point in history. Some preterists believe that the final chapters of Revelation look forward to the second coming of Christ. Others think that everything in the book of Revelation is in its accumulation already, and it's your partial and your total. The third is the futurist approach, and this postulates that the majority of the prophecies of the book of Revelation have never yet been fulfilled and await future fulfillment. Futurist interpreters usually apply everything after chapter 4 
to a relatively brief period before the return of Christ. And then you have the fourth approach, and this has a couple different names, but we will use the name the symbolic approach. And the symbolic approach doesn't attempt to find fulfillments of the visions in Revelation, in historical events per se, but they show a great drama depicting transcendent spiritual realities, such as the spiritual conflict between Christ and Satan, between the saints and the anti-Christian world powers. They depict the heavenly vindication and final victory of Christ and his saints. Fulfillment is seen either as entirely spiritual or as recurrent, finding representative expression in historical events throughout the age rather than in one-time specific events. The prophecy is thus rendered applicable to Christians in any age. You might find some intermixing of those ideas in some writers. Uh, You might find another odd vergent to it. But generally, when you look at the issues, those are kind of the four options you have. And different Christians have taken different tasks. As the book I read pointed out, the Reformers, and we are the children of the Reformers, not slavishly, but we are the Reformed Church, the Reformers took a historicist approach. They saw uh, the Revelation being what God is doing in symbol. It's going to be everything from the early church to the end of the world, and it covers all of history. Uh, amillennial thought which has become very popular in the Reformed Church, tends to, but does not require, the idealist approach, the symbolic approach. Um, Amillennialism sees revelation uh, really being great spiritual truths that aren't attached to time, um, and that's become a very popular approach uh, in our circles, not what it was in the past, but what it is now. Dispensational thought pretty much requires futurism, and that has become kind of the de facto understanding in the Christian church. Everything that Revelation talks about has been balled up and put in the future. We haven't got there yet, although one begins to wonder, but uh, you know, it's going to come. It's going to come down the road. Evangelicalism in general, whether it is dispensational or not, has kind of adopted that. And so today it's been said no major biblical commentary on Revelation has been written for 50 years that takes a futurist approach. Almost all of them take, I mean not futurist, but historicist, they almost all take this futuristic approach. Uh, Tim LaHaye, the Antichrist coming, seven years. Uh, That's where the grand majority of the Christian church just assumes And then if you are post-millennial, and according to our confession, we are post-millennial. If you look at the Savoy Declaration, the language there is very post-millennial. Post-millennialism tends to lean towards historicism. It does not demand it, but that is the most comfortable locking, and that's what you generally see. But why am I talking about that? I didn't read Revelation, I read Daniel. So why am I going into this? Well, the reason for that is because in a very, very real way, the visions given to Daniel the prophet in the 6th century BC were for uh, the church of his day very much like the book of Revelation for us. If you compare the two books, especially the second half of the book, but it also is prominent in the first half, uh, you have visions. And you have visions that are clearly symbols to some degree. And the books work pretty similar. If you were a believer in the 4th century B.C., 200 years after Daniel had been given his visions and you were trying to figure out what they meant, you would be in pretty much the same kind of place as 
New Testament believers right now are when they open up the book of Revelation and try to understand the visions there. And so there is a, a, a major overlap. Um, most have taken the visions of Revelation and of Daniel to be historical, and uh, they would point to a very clear promise from God that God will reveal what he's going to do before he does it. In a, a very direct passage in another prophet, this time the prophet Amos, uh, God says this in chapter 3. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest if he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap set for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Now, all these questions are rhetorical. The answer is absolutely. The prophet assumes you're going to say that. And so the prophet now brings forward a truth that God has been revealing and now overtly promises, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So if you are of a mind that these are historical uh, messages that they deal with time in a real way, they're not just symbolic, Uh, you would kind of point to what God said through Amos. God there says, uh, whatever I'm going to do covenantally, it's not every time I send the Spirit forth and renew the earth, although God promised that in Psalm 104, Uh, but every time I do something significant with my people, every time... uh, I'm not doing anything in a vacuum. I'm not doing anything in a corner. I'm going to declare what I'm going to do. And, well, that's kind of what these books look like. Um, If you were historicist or slightly futurist in 4th century B.C., um, you would probably be on the mark with this passage. Now, I'm not throwing that that's the way you interpret every vision, but in this particular chapter, God has gone out of his way to interpret the passage for us. Daniel is given a vision, the vision of goats and rams, a vision of horns, a vision of a goat that doesn't touch the ground, it comes furiously from the west, shatters the ram with its two horns, Uh, all the imagery that you're kind of used to in these kind of prophecies, and then God sends an angel, specifically Gabriel, and Gabriel is told, now explain the vision to Daniel, and the explanation is very deeply rooted into what for you and I is clearly history. If you were to go and get a history book on the ancient world, you could look up the rise of the kingdom of Media and Persia. A merged kingdom, Media and Persia came together the way Scotland and England ultimately came together. In their unity, they're very powerful. They expand north and south and west, although they don't extend east. And in this vision, that's what the ram does. He goes north and uh, west and south. Uh, he becomes a great power. He absorbs lots of kingdoms. And then if you're reading this book on the rise of Media and Persia, you're probably going to read about its fall. And its fall happens when the kingdom of Greece, which is what Gabriel tells Daniel is happening, the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great smashes into the kingdom of Media Persia and totally subjects it. It gets conquered. But... Alexander the Great, the horn that smashes the ram, dies young, dies unexpectedly, 
the end result is that his four generals, because Alexander wasn't the kind of guy that had children, his four generals end up dividing the kingdom, and they end up being four kingdoms on earth, and they vie for power, and they're not as powerful as Alexander, but they end up being powers on earth, and they replace the kingdom of Greece. You would read about all of that in an ancient history book, even if it's a secular history book that doesn't have any tie to the Bible. That would be the history as we know it, because we can look back on it. But now, you're, you're in 6th century B.C., and Elam is its own kingdom and trying to hold its own. Susha, or Sushan, as the New King James puts it, is a significant city, but it's not yet been absorbed into Media and Persia. It's not yet become the second capital of Media and Persia. It's not happened yet. Uh, you're trying to understand this vision. And let's say you have only the vision, but you don't have Gabriel's description of what it means how are you going to interpret it well the odds are you're going to have a very hard time understanding it and Daniel does even though Gabriel just explained it to him totally at the end of the chapter we're left with Daniel saying uh, in, in some translation it says but I could not understand the vision in the New King James Version it says no one could understand the vision well, how do you miss it, Daniel? Gabriel just put it in time. He said there's going to be a rise of a great kingdom. Greece is going to smash it. Uh, he just laid out history, but you can't understand it. Why can't you? Well, the reason falls into human nature. Let us say that the grand majority of prophecies are historicists. Um, how do people tend to view history? Well, the truth is, people tend to view history as though their generation is the last generation. A friend of mine calls that chronocentrism. It means that because we live here and because everything around us is so dynamic, we naturally assume we've come to the culmination of history. And so if we understand the Bible from a historicist point of view, that it deals with history as history unfolds, we're going to assume we're living in a time where we can interpret everything we've read because we're at the top of history. A lot of the reformers interpreted the book of Revelation as having passages that spoke about the Reformation. I fall into that category. I would think that's true. What happens if you're reading the, ref, the Revelation and it's the 9th century A.D.? You're not going to have the Reformation for another 600 years, but the Reformation is talked about in Revelation. How are you going to interpret Revelation? We're not going to interpret it by the Reformation because it's not happened yet and you can't even imagine it. If you go back and look at commentaries on the Revelation from 8th century A.D., the passages that the Reformers interpret as being from the Reformation are totally interpreted in totally different ways because the people live in the 8th century AD. They can't picture the future, even though the book would talk about the future. Because we are effectively self-centered, and we assume our generation is the last generation, so we don't understand it right. And that's apparently what Daniel is doing here. Uh, you had visions of rams and horns and, and the goat didn't even touch the ground. And if I were Hal Lindsay, I would picture a flying goat. I would picture this must be some sort of hover boat or, or it must be some sort of uh, helicopter because the goat doesn't touch the ground, right? But Gabriel clearly tells uh, Daniel this is the king of Greece. And the symbolism of the flying goat is how quickly it's attacking. It doesn't have anything to do with being flying in real life. It's a symbol. But Gabriel tells Daniel, this is what it is. Greece is going to attack Persia. Persia is going to fall. Greece is going to split. And then you're going to have a little horn. 
And that little horn is going to be very significant, and God is going to do things through the little horn, and this is all history, and it's all in God's control, and it all has to do with his covenant. And Daniel says, I'm really troubled, I feel sick at heart, this is overwhelming to me, and also I don't understand a word of it. That's very, very human. And that's where we're going to be, really, because that's the inherent weakness in historicism uh, because of humanity. And that is what we seem to see here. But that being said, God doesn't give prophecies for no reason and not to edify the people who hear them. If we were in the 6th century B.C. and we heard this prophecy, we'd be with Daniel and we'd have no idea how history works out, even though God draws his map. But there are certain truths here that are extremely important for God's covenant, and they're important for any age to know. The first one is a time is going to come when, according to verse 11 and verse 25, There will be a king come, and he will come from one of the four kingdoms of Greece, and he will exalt himself. And going through the book of Daniel, at this point we'd say, well, no duh, I mean, that's what kings do, they're they're idols. But this time it's uh, to the nth degree, at least as far as has ever come yet. This little horn will exalt himself to the point where he, quote, puts himself as high as the prince of the host. Now, what does, what does that language say to you? Prince of the host. Well, Gabriel explains the term host to us. He defines the host as the people of God, the, 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 the chosen of God. Uh, we know who the host is, but who is the prince of the host? You see, if he was referring to God the Father, or the Godhead in total, we would hear about the Lord Most High, or we would hear about uh, Yahweh by his name, or we would hear about some absolute high rule. But all the way through this passage, it's the prince of the host. Now, biblically, who is the prince if God is the king? Well, the reference is to the coming Messiah. All the way from the beginning of Scripture, all the way through it, there's a promised coming one. He's going to be ordained prophet, priest, and king. Emphasis king here. He will be uh, the king under the Lord, but he will be the Lord. He will be the prince of the host. This is the promise of the Lord Christ. This little king, this little horn, will exalt himself to where he says, you're looking for a Messiah? You're looking for the power of God on earth. You're looking for one to show you who God looks like. I'm your guy. If you went to that ancient history book, there's no question that if you went beyond Media Persia and you studied the history of Greece, there would be a whole chapter on one of the kings of the four kingdoms because of his amazing audaciousness. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Does anyone know what the term epiphanies means? Have you heard of the term epiphany? In churches that celebrate liturgically the calendar, epiphany is the grand glorious appearance of the glory of God. Antiochus epiphanies means The glory of God manifested on earth. It's not a last name. It's a title. And it's a title he gave himself. The people of God are looking for the prince of the host. They're looking for the great Messiah. Antiochus comes to them and says, I am Epiphanes. I am the glory of God on earth. Other kings have wanted to be worshipped, sure. Uh, They have made themselves godlike. But I will just cut to the chase, and I'll make myself God. I am the glory of God. I am the one you've been looking for. Turn to me, uh, and if you don't, I will crush you out of existence. And that is exactly what Antiochus goes on to do. 
the way the vision puts it is he will sweep the host of the heavens, he will sweep the stars out of the heavens, and he will trample on them. Now, before we go on and we look at some more negative material, we ought to consider the amazing positiveness of that image. In a very dark vision, and Daniel is disturbed by its darkness, God has just described his people as being to him the stars of heaven. What does that imagery say to you? God is describing us. He's making the image. What are the stars of heaven? Well, if you look up into the night sky, everything is black, dark. The symbolism of blackness and void in scripture is evil, and there's a lot of it. But in the night sky, there are pricks of light. There are small lights that shine in the heavens, and they shine the brighter because it's so dark. If it wasn't so dark, you wouldn't see the stars, but the stars are lights in the darkness. So even though in our passage, God is going to describe a a phenomenon that is uh, painful, realize that God views you and I, the people of the host, God's chosen in Christ, as the very stars in the heavens. And this is certainly not the only place you will find that. If you go to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians at Philippi, and there, in talking about us, in chapter 2 and verse 12 through 16, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. It's a dark and crooked generation, uh, who is that generation? Well, it's the generation of everybody's not saved. It's, it's human beings. In the midst of lost humanity, you shine like lights among their darkness. Or, as the uh, NIV puts it, maybe a little paraphrasingly, but do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Uh, Lights in the darkness may be the more literal translation, but reading it, you think of stars in the universe. And the NIV is a little bit of a paraphrase, but it is hearkening back to Daniel's vision. Not only that one, but several others. Um... God has given light to his people. And even though Antiochus is going to come, and he's going to come in God's hand and in God's timing and according to his providence, and he's going to trample some of God's people, and it's going to go on for a while, that doesn't change the way God sees his people. His people are lights to him in darkness. There's a lot of darkness, but God looks on creation and rejoices because of the light that is there, and that is you and me. Now, having said that, uh, the vision clearly builds up to Antiochus and what he's going to do. He is going to attack God's people. He's going to attack God's land. He is going to be a tyrant who is going to persecute. Why is that happening? Well, according to verse 12, God brings on his people Antichrist people. Antiochus Epiphanes is effectively a symbol of Antichrist. If there's going to come, quote, the Antichrist, if, if that's the way that plays out, 
uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was his John the Baptist. It would be very difficult to do more than Antiochus did. He sacrificed a hog on the altar of God in the temple. So this is about as bad as they get. Why would God bring him? Well, according to verse, 20, according to verse 12, we read this. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Why is God lifting Antiochus up? God raises kingdoms and he puts kingdoms down, and this is about the worst you could ever see raised up. Why did God do this? Well, it's because of transgression. In chapter 7 of Daniel, uh, not Daniel, but uh, Jeremiah, there is a, a famous passage where Jeremiah is preaching out in front of the temple, and he is calling on them to repent. And uh, Jesus will quote Jeremiah 7 uh, when he cleanses the temple in his day. But Jeremiah calls upon the people to repent. He's standing right in front of the temple. And he says, you know what you're doing? You are sinning against God knowingly. You are, are willfully idolatrous. You are willfully adulterous. You are willfully faithless, but you come to this place, you come to the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, he says it three times, I'm quoting, and you think you're safe because the temple of the Lord is among you. God has given you the priesthood, he's given you the sacraments, he's given you the things of true religion, you think that God will not bring punishment on you because you have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We have a lovely, sweeping, stone-built, congregationalist church. We have existed for 240 years. God has allowed our ministry to be some of the most educated, surely, the fact that we no longer believe the Bible, surely the fact that we walk in what the Bible calls wickedness, surely uh, the fact that we, we really are faithless, God will not crush us from the map, will he? I mean, think about this. This is, this is a beautiful North Church. This is a, this is a historical landmark in, in the United States. This is one of the most ancient church buildings in the world. Surely God will honor the beauty and magnificence of this long-lived religious tradition, right? God doesn't seem to be about that. God doesn't seem to be about honoring our art and our magnificence and the mere temple where there's no faith. In, In the vision... Daniel is told, the reason why I'm bringing this most terrible man that you ever met on you is because of transgressions. He's going to trample the people of God. He's also going to defile the temple. Remember that hog on the altar thing? He's going to do that because you need punishing. And not only that, he will for a while make truth disappear. You heard him say that, right? He will trample the truth out of existence. Going back to the book of Amos, and in fact, this morning, I almost feel like I'm preaching more out of Amos and Daniel, but uh, as, as the prophet Amos comes to a close, he has described God's punishment on his people in many ways and in many forms, but in reality, this last picture of God's wrath is the most frightening, the most destructive, and it's been bad. If you read Amos, uh, almost all of Amos is judgment. But as we get near the end of the book, um, we get to uh, verse 11 through 14 of chapter 8, 
And this is kind of the culmination of God's judgment. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. God says, I'm raising up this little horn. He is going to crush the, the worship of the temple. He's going to change times and seasons. He's going to, to abominate the temple. But he is also, for a time, going to take the word of God from you. Most of the Christian church views God as begging mankind to repent, just pleading with man, not really having any power to affect man in any way except for his tears. And God is deeply longing that they will just embrace his word, and and when they do that, he will just be overjoyed to receive them. Well, God is gracious, but all that grace is in Jesus Christ, and it's a grace that changes men. When you're not in Jesus Christ and you're under the wrath of God, one of the things God will do to you is he will take the word of God from you. We are not, and I have, I have said this many times, I'll say it again many times, we are not the only church of God on earth. God has blessed us with thousands upon thousands of uh, godly congregations in America and across the land Uh, We know we're not the only Christians, but ask yourself a question. In the churches of Jesus Christ today, in our country, how many assembled congregations do you think are hearing the Word of God right now? There There are many. We're not the only ones. But there's many, many, many who are not. And they are living in rebellion to God. Their ministers are teaching them wickedness. And when the minister goes back into his study, he chuckles to himself about how he is thwarting God. But in reality, God is bringing his judgment. He has turned off the word of God. He has turned off the truth. They can't find it because it is the hand of God's judgment on them. And Antiochus Epiphanes, the little horn, is going to bring that about, but he is going to bring it about only for as long as God will allow. God will not allow the Antiochus Epiphanes of the world to triumph. He will use them to purify his people, but they will be crushed, but not by human hand. How long will this go on? The angels say it will go on for exactly this amount and no more. I don't want to get into the numbers because, honestly, that's kind of esoteric. But it's very, very clear that God says it happens for this long, and it is in my hand, and it'll stop. And when Antiochus Epiphanes is brought down, it will be by no human hand, it'll be my mind. Antiochus leaves a huge swath on history, and a lot of people write about him. But interestingly, we're not exactly sure how he died. The best guess is that he got a disease that could not be cured. And he got the disease after Rome thwarted him but didn't defeat him. Uh, He died of a disease that no doctor could treat and he died miserably. But that's from certain inferences. It's not as clear as it might be. In the Apocrypha, not in the Bible, but in the Apocrypha, Antiochus Epiphanes dies twice and under two different, very different conditions. Uh, the Apocrypha does not tell us how Antiochus died in reality. But all the ancient authors portray him as having risen up in great power and pomp, and then at the end of his life, thwarted, but not really by human hands. <coughs> it's just everything came together, and he could not pull off his evil plots, 
and he died miserably and alone. This, the glory of God on earth. You see, there's only one prince who is actually the prince of the host. There is only one glory of God on earth, and God is on his side. God will defend the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will promote his throne. But any other epiphanies is a lie. They're in God's hand. He will do what he wishes through them. But God will bring them down just as much as he lifted them up. And they will do what God wants and they will vanish. But there is a prince... And we would know this in the 6th century, even if we didn't understand all about media version and all that. There is a prince of the host for this horn to exalt himself to that level. And there's something very interesting about that prince. According to uh, this passage, and it's said more than once, but for our purposes, we will turn simply to verse 17... Um, this vision, quote, refers to the time of the end, end quote. Now, uh, we know, because Gabriel's told us, this has to do with Greece, it has to do with Media Persia, it has to do with the four kingdoms of Greece. Uh, we've had 2,500 more years. So how can Gabriel tell us twice that this has to do with the end. Well, it depends on what you think the end is. The end of what? If you assume the end of time, well, Gabriel and God got it wrong, but that can't be the definition. What has come to an end? What does Antiochus Epiphanes ultimately usher in? Well, he lays the groundwork for the Maccabean kingdom, the Maccabean kingdom lays the groundwork for Rome to come in. Rome lays all the roads around the world that eventually apostles are going to walk. And Rome lays the groundwork for the perfect appearing of the prince of the host. The end is the end of the ancient world. The end is the old way of God relating to man in the, the covenantal ways of the temple and of a nation relating to them through the Levitical code, all of that, that world goes away when the prince of the host walks among men. And Antiochus Epiphanes would rip his own eyes out rather than serve God and lay the foundation for the ministry of Jesus Christ but that is exactly providentially what he did. God used him and the persecution to do his will. He ultimately established his kingdom. God's people didn't disappear. And the prince of the host came and the world ended. And our world started. You have no idea the privilege that God has given you. Do you have to go to a building in Jerusalem to seek God? Do you have to bring uh, bullocks and lambs to be sacrificed on an altar? Is there a veil between you and God that you can never walk through? Because that's the holy place and you will never be holy enough to walk in there. That is a world of difference. Everything about that way of God dealing with men said you are still out. You're my people, and I've made provision, but I hold you at length. The world ended, though. When Jesus Christ was, was crucified, the veil between the holy place and the most holy place was ripped from top to bottom. Uh, the, the, the true temple, which is the hearts of God's people in assembly, uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that had not happened before. Uh, Jesus Christ said you can now call God Abba, which means kinda, sort of daddy, but it's very, very warm, it's very, very emotional. Uh, you're in a totally different world. God does that while at the same time punishing his people. He punishes them because they are the stars in the universe to him, and he doesn't want their light to go out. 
I read Amos chapter 3, verse 3 through 8 already, but there is a, a lead into that passage, which I'm, I'm saving for my stinger. Um, God says, whatever I do, I'm going to prophesy about it. Well, what's the context of that? Well, it's verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That's God making a decision. I've known you and nobody else. You're my people. Uh, I brought you out of Egypt. Uh, I extended grace to you. I made myself known to you. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. See, God's grace is kind of a double-edged sword. We are the people of God. We are the stars in the heavens. We have been given grace. God will not let us go. And if his people on earth rebel, if, say, 57% of everyone in the Presbyterian Church in America supports abortion on demand, which is what the polls say, if God's people no longer believe his word to be inerrant and true, if they don't have faith in him, if they adopt wickedness, whatever wickedness may be, God will bring his punishment on his people because they're his stars in the universe. He won't let the light go out. And he will bring even the Antiochus Epiphanes of the world to bear. But it is because we are the kingdom of the prince of the host, and he will purify his kingdom. Daniel feels sickened at the end of this vision, just like he does at the end of the vision last week. When we see God's hand in history, it should humble us. Uh, God is sovereign. God will have his kingdom. God will defend it from North Korea. He'll defend it from China. He'll defend it from Washington. But heaven's going to shake, and earth is going to tremble, and that power comes from God, and only God's hand means we survive it. How long does it last? It lasts this long and no more because I'm God. And it will do what I want. 